Hello and welcome to ContraPulse. This is Julie Valamont. This episode, I sit down with fellow ContraDance pianist Sue Songer. In addition to playing piano, Sue also plays fiddle and is a member of two bands that host ongoing dances in Portland, Oregon, Joyride and The Stage Crew. Sue is also deeply involved with community all-comer ContraDance bands, and she has organized and directed the 75-member Portland Mega Band since 1996. Sue compiled the three volumes of the Portland Collection, ContraDance Music in the Pacific Northwest, along with her collaborator Clyde Curley. Together, these volumes comprise nearly 1,000 fiddle tunes, all in the ContraDance repertoire, and they are widely used across North America and the UK and beyond. In recognition of her many contributions to the ContraDance community, CDSS granted Sue its Lifetime Contribution Award in 2019. In our interview, Sue describes her journey from Suzuki violin lessons to support her daughter, to becoming a fully-fledged contradance musician and organizer extraordinaire. We discuss the dance and music scene in the Pacific Northwest, the evolution of Sue's piano style, her knack for notating tunes, which led to the origin of the Portland Collection, and the secret sauce behind the epic sound of the Portland Megaband. Sue also talks about her most recent publication, a book commemorating and celebrating the life and work of David Kaner, her friend and frequent music partner. Let's dive in.
Sue Songer, and welcome to ContraPulse. Hello, Julie. I am honored and happy to be here. I am so happy to have you here, and I'm very excited to meet you because we have not met yet, and that's very thrilling for me. Well, it's also um, something I've been looking forward to a lot, and as you know, I have known of you and listened to your music now for quite a long time. Well, I am very flattered or humbled or something, surprised, amazed to hear you say that, because when I was first learning to play for Contra Dances, the Portland Collection albums were one of the ones that I was listening to because I was trying to figure out who all the different piano players were out there and listen to all their different styles. And so you were one of the first people who I listened to. And so (laughs) if I play Contras, it's partly your fault. (laughs) Well, I'm I'm happy to have that responsibility on my shoulders. (laughs) So it's, it's just so lovely to come full circle and get to chat with you today over Zoom. And where are you right now? I am at home in Portland, sitting in my office. Lovely. Looking out. What's the weather Oh, it's blue skies today. It's and it's mild blue skies. It's it's like a perfect Portland summer day. Oh, that's beautiful. It's like mid August right now. And I'm in Brattleboro, Vermont, and it's raining here. So we traded weather for a day. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we'd take your rain. We haven't had any. Oh, that's so funny. I know it's been crazy on the west coast Mm -hmm. this summer yeah really hot really hot yeah really dry a lot of heat yeah yeah i mean i know a lot of things are different now because of covid Mm -hmm. i can only imagine what's your musical life been like the last few months uh empty (laughs) so uh, just before we started i was reading an email from someone putting another gig at the end of october on hold yeah. And that's it's been mostly um, discontinuing the very few things that have been restarted. So, yeah. you know, it's um, it's a test of patience. It is. We have to wait a little while mm-hmm. longer. We do. Well, I want to cut right to it because there's so many things about you that I don't know. Um, here's what I do know right. is that you play piano and fiddle. And you have several contra dance bands, including Joyride, and you uh, are the one of the leaders and organizers of the Portland Mega Band, which sounds like quite the epic adventure. I've never been on stage. I think I was. Do you play fiddle tunes? Uh, no, no fiddle tunes. Um, folk life, yes. So folk life. Yes. Sorry, I meant folk life. The okay. The, the Mega Band plays every other year at folk life, but um, because that's. The, you can't play any more often than every other year at Northwest Folklife on the contra dance stage. They have too many bands that want to play. But that that's not the the full mega band. That is usually forty to fifty. Okay. That is the first and only time I've heard the Portland oh, Mega Band was my first year oh my at Folklife. It was years and years ago. Oh. And I was a brand new contra musician and I went out to Folklife. And it was so cool. So I can't even imagine what the whole phenomenon yeah. is. And then, of course, you are also um, one of the people who assembled and has published the Portland Collection books, which so many of us use for Contra Tunes. And then I also want to talk to you about the new book that you've put out uh, of David Kaner's tunes. So not all the interviews have like a bullet point list of things to look forward to. But for our listeners, these are all the things Mm -hmm. I'm looking forward to hearing about and so many more. 
But before we get to that, why don't we start from the beginning? I would just love to hear a little bit about how you started playing music for contra dances and how that became a part of your life. All right. Uh, do you want the long story? <laughs> we have lots of time. All right. Okay. I will give you the long story. Um, so I I discovered contra dancing um, in the mid '80s, it had been going for maybe five or six years here in Portland, and I, I entered in, and I loved it. I, I loved it, and I especially loved the music. Um, and in fact, I I used to feel like my real partner was the music. You know, the dancers were just they were a pleasant accessory, but they were an accessory. So I was I was really wedded to the music, but I, I never gave a thought to playing it. Um, I was 20 years from having touched an instrument at that point and busy. And so I, after a couple of years of dancing, as life worked out, my daughter um, begged for violin lessons. And so I, um, I got her Suzuki lessons. I inquired and learned that that was the recommended thing to do. And the Suzuki teacher told me that because she was so young, I was going to have to learn to play the violin myself so that I could teach her. Uh, I had zero interest in learning to play the violin. (laughs) (laughs) But I wanted to be a good mom. So I I rented a violin and we got her, you know, a little kid violin. and, And with practically the first bow stroke, I was hooked. I just thought, oh my gosh, I have got to learn to play this instrument. But, um... I did not want to play the Suzuki repertoire. I, I thought, if I'm going to learn this, I want to learn the contra dance music. Mm-hmm. So, um, I at that time in Portland, there were, well, there still are, uh, there were monthly teaching sessions for people who wanted to learn how to play contra dance tunes. George Pank and Clyde Curley, my two eventual recording mates were um, running month-long classes for beginning musicians. And so I, uh, I took my fiddle and went to one of their sessions. And at that time, I had only played Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star and Go Tell Aunt Rhody on the fiddle. <laughs> and I had never played on the D or the G string. And I didn't wow. know whether I could. <laughs> so... <laughs> I sat through the entire teaching session with my fiddle in my case because I was too shy to take it out. Um, mm-hmm. And um, so that that ended up being the start of two things, although I, I had no idea at the time. So anyway, I, I sat and I remember the tunes that they taught were Kesh Jig and Lanigan's Ball. Um, so after the whole thing was over... Um, I, I asked, I didn't have a recorder or anything. I mean, I didn't know how this was done. Um, and I asked if anyone had a piece of paper and I uh, drew staff lines and went over to the piano and I notated the tunes because I'd learned them in my head. And I, I played them on the piano and, um, and everybody gathered around and they said, what are you doing? You know how to write this stuff down? And and it, as it turns out, I did. Um, so that was actually the beginning of the Portland collections, although who knew at that time. So people told me there, because this had been going for some months and most people had played much longer than me. They said, well, um, 
you belong in the slow beginners because you can't play. <laughs> so, so there was uh, there was another group I didn't know about called the slow beginners that <laughs> that met on an alternate time. But I said, well, okay, you know, I'll, whatever it takes for me to learn the music. You know, I couldn't keep up with this group. So I I went to the very next slow beginners meeting, mm-hmm. and. On short order, I learned that I didn't belong there either because um, I couldn't play. I still couldn't play, but I could hear what they were supposed to be doing. And so um, so very quickly, I started singing what they were supposed to be playing because mm-hmm. I could hear, you know, I knew how potatoes fit with like the beginning of the music. And I knew how long a note should be held at the end of the phrase. I knew stuff like that. And, and so I thought, well, you know, I don't belong here either. So what I have to do is work really hard and keep up with the other group, catch up and keep up. So that's what I did. Uh, and so I, I think at that time I, I didn't have any thought of playing for dances. Uh, I, um, I had only recently learned that dance musicians weren't like gods. And <laughs> <laughs> wait, we're not. What? <laughs> well, I remember I, w- I was shocked when I first started dancing to learn that they weren't being paid hundreds of dollars a night, <laughs> or at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, they were they were just expert to me, and I I imagine they were total professional musicians that did this. Um, all the time, and I, I was just amazed. That's how naive I was to, to learn that, that, no, they had other jobs, and, you know, they got played a pittance. And um, anyway, that was very surprising. Uh, so so anyway, I, I stuck with this group, and I, I did catch up. I, um, I was very diligent about fiddle. Yeah. And and just so that I can understand, you played piano already at this point, like having played piano when you were a kid? I play piano. I um I didn't have too much thought at that time about playing piano. For one thing, mm. Portland had a surplus of piano players. I I think mm. every fiddler in town was married to a piano player. Mm. In, including me, the a new fiddle player because my husband played piano. <laughs> <laughs> And and so I didn't see too much opportunity. So I I just um, pursued fiddle and um, stuck with this group, learned tunes, um, and then I I went to Fiddle Tunes, which is mm-hmm. a, a huge music festival in the Northwest. And I I saw um, I couldn't play in any of those sessions. I was that whole first year. I'd only played fiddle for a year or so. I was. I was in this room um, with a big sign on the door saying "Baby Jammers," so I was, I was uh, really happy in the Baby Jammers room. In fact, well, I'm kind of rambling and getting off track here, but um, one of the high points of my musical life was being with a couple of friends in the Baby Jammers room, and these people came in who we didn't know, but we knew some of the same tunes. We all knew Bonaparte Crossing the Rhine. And we all knew like golden slippers. And so here a group of people who were strangers sat down with us and we could all play music together. And that was like a a wonderful moment to discover. 
isn't that an incredible moment for so many people who discover trad music, especially later in life where you don't grow up in it. It's like the first time where you can just sit down and play music with other people in an unstructured, mm-hmm. spontaneous way. And it's incredible. Yeah. I remember that those moments for myself. I had been like a classical musician and a church organist and a accompanist, but I never like jammed with people. Yeah. And it was just so incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, it was the same for me. And I, this reminds me of something I have thought of listening to your other podcasts and all these other wonderful musicians you've spoken with and, and their super rich backgrounds, you know, either in they've studied the music of some kind or another, or they grew up in a family that, um, exposed them to lots of music or they pursued their own interests of music. And comparatively speaking, I was in a musical desert. You know, with uh, with very little exposure, I grew up in a, a very tiny town in eastern Washington with one radio station that we um, we were able to listen to one hour of rock and roll a night. And wow, <laughs> and that was kind of yeah that and um, you know the heydays of American bandstand. Um, so I I I came as a kind of blank slate, I guess you would say, when I arrived at the contradance scene. I did not have any context to put it in. And so anyway, here I am at Fiddle Tunes and I'm discovering that I, I know tunes that other people know and we can play them together and it's just wonderful. And so I had a, a really good time. I hardly ever left the baby jammers room except uh, to tour like other faster sessions. But at those sessions, I observed piano players. And they could just follow along. You know, the, the tunes would change and the the accompanist would just change right along with them. And I was amazed at uh, their ability to do this. And so I decided I wanted to learn piano um, so I could do that. And so I had the thought of playing in sessions before I had the thought of playing for dances. So then I began what I thought was probably a futile pursuit of piano. <laughs> um and I worked at that as well. And um, anyway, it led eventually to, gosh, do you think we're good enough to be a band? <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. <laughs> with some friends and, and my husband. And so we decided to give it a shot. And, that, uh, and we apparently were good enough, maybe just barely good enough to be a band. <laughs> But but we were good enough, and in that band there were two other piano players. This is this is my typical experience. So <laughs> so I played piano for a third of the evening in that band. Wow! So that that was my my start. Wow! Switching off, yeah. We all know that game of piano players, kind of jockeying for time on the bench. Yes. And, you know, any piano player should learn another instrument so you have something to do when you're not playing piano. Yes. Yeah. I love your story because, you know, you come to trad music a little bit, you know, like not growing up in it, which is similar to my story. And then you've just become such a an important person in spreading the love of traditional music to other people, like through your work with the Mega Band and the Portland Collections. And it just really underscores the point for me that like trad music is for everybody. Mm-hmm. It's folk music. It's like for everybody. It doesn't matter if you're a fancy player or not. There's a spot for everybody to participate. 
and making those um, opportunities for people is so important. And it's such a great way that you've really given back yeah. to the community. It's just wonderful. Oh, thank you. I, I, I really do believe what you said, that there, there is a place for everybody, whether they are, you know, playing in a hotshot band or playing with a small group um, at a session or in their home. Um, it's something that people can enjoy on many different levels. And, you know, certainly I just, I think when I set out, I, I just wanted to be able to join other people musically. That, mm -hmm. I, I didn't have um, big aspirations. You know, I didn't even imagine that I would be able to do it. Uh, and so I, I just hoped that I could enter in, you know, and sit down in the circle and keep up. And uh, so that, that was my main motivation. Yeah, those little just moments of connection and fun times. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Do you remember what it was like when you were learning in terms of like learning to play tunes by ear or learning to play chords? Do you remember any like breakthrough moments or inspiration you got from other people? Um, hmm. Well, as it turns out, uh, I'm... I'm a rather natural ear player. I, mm. I didn't know that when I wrote down, you know, that first um, teaching session that I was talking about when I wrote down the music. I wrote it down because I had no idea whether I would be able to remember it. And as it turns out, I can remember. Um, if I had any breakthrough moments, it'd probably be in learning to read music, oddly enough. Because I'm not a natural reader. I mean, it, that's a funny thing to say as someone who's put out all this, you know, written music. <laughs> but um, I, one of the hard things for me is um, teaching people how to recognize chords. Um, you know, how do you know whether it's a four chord or five chord, even if it's, you know, of course, that's always debatable. And to my mind, well, it's a four chord because it sounds like a four chord. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. how do you know what is blue? Well, it's blue because it, it looks, looks like it, it's blue. And so I, I guess that's something that um, came to me before I can remember. We'll just put it that way. Um, the, I, I will say that when I first started listening to music, I probably only heard three or four chords in the tunes. Mm -hmm. um, no matter how many chords were played, I clumped them. <laughs> <laughs> I, I clumped them into, okay, minor, four, five, and one. And that, that was probably the extent of how I could recognize them. And then as I got more familiar with the music and maybe listened to the same things again, I could hear many more. You know, maybe it's a two minor and not just the five or things like that. So I, mm -hmm. my, my ear became more sophisticated as I listened yeah. more. And, and I think people were doing more th different things chordally, too, over the years, that people were expanding from the basic chords more than the earlier music. So maybe there was more to listen to. Right, and that timing coincided with when you were learning and paying attention to these things yeah. and developing your own style, Yeah, which is fun. Now, I do remember how I went about learning um, learning a piano style, which is a little different than the question you asked. And that, um, I had a, a cassette tape, this is pre-CD, of a group from Seattle called Salmonberry. 
And they, their piano player is a woman, Pat Spaeth. And it's a very traditional sounding recording. And the piano was really, really clear on that recording. And I liked it a lot. I really liked her style. So I took the cassette tape and I went two measures by two measures. And I'd play two measures and then I'd try to imitate it. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And um, I would go back over the two measures until I could do a reasonable facsimile of what Pat was doing. And then I moved to the next two measures. I'd play four majors together, and I went that way through a couple of their tracks. And, and I, um, I remember studying her and trying to figure out how she got the sound she was getting, you know, in a kind of disciplined way. Yeah, so she was a big influence on She you. was. Yeah. Do you know her her who her influences were? You know, I don't. She she is a really accomplished accomplished musician on on many levels. She's a woman who can play many many different styles. It just flows mm -hmm. out of her and she has left the Northwest a long time ago. I know someone who might know mm -hmm. how she learned and who she learned from, but I I don't know that about her. Maybe we can link to some things about her in the podcast notes because that would be really fun. I, I'll, I'll do some research on that. I, I know just the person to ask. Oh, that would be cool. Yeah. yeah, I love listening to your piano playing. You know, I don't know your all the facets of your style. I only know what I've heard on recordings from the other side of the country. But, like, learning piano and listening to the Portland Collection albums was great because your piano playing is so clear and simple. And it is really just a really nice underpinning for the tune. And you play in this kind of traditional sounding boom chuck style, but with like syncopations mixed in. And there's just something really light and bouncy about your playing. It has a, a lot of like grace and lift to it that I just really enjoyed a lot. Well, thank you. And that probably goes back to Pat's faith because her, her style had a lot of lift. And so I... I paid attention to how she did that. It, it seemed really textured, you know, not just like playing on a typewriter. Yeah. Do you know how that would translate to your hands? Like, is there a way to verbalize without a piano in front <laughs> um, of you? Like what that means for you? Uh, it, it means kind of sinking in and lifting up. I, and um, that's, that's the best way I can put it. The, um, the up and downness of it. Uh, Betsy Branch calls it the yumptiness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the yumptiness. The, the yumptiness of great. it and trying to get some of that on piano too. Because contra dancing is a yumpty kind of <laughs> dance. It's an up and down mm -hmm. dance at heart because it's a walking yeah. dance. And so you have this natural exactly. feeling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Yeah, so it's just, and I, um, I sometimes will use a pedal to get that effect, you know, put it mm. down, lift it off. Some people frown on that. My husband, for one. <laughs> well, I guess um, you have to use it in a way that fits your style, yes. right? You're not just washing over the whole thing, no. like a watercolor wash. It's more very strategic. It is a strategic yeah. pedal, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. I use pedal sometimes when, yeah, when I want to hold a bass note and use my left hand for something mm -hmm. else, which is not exactly the same way that you're using it. A lot of Cape Breton piano players use pedal when they play. It's oh. very common. Um, you know, I feel like for contra dancing, we often want a, I don't know, a cleaner sound, a drier sound. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's very common. And, you know, if used tastefully... 
the, the the piano has those really rich sounds, especially in the lower string. And when you have the pedal down, the piano resonates in this really wonderful way. I have never thought of using a pedal to capture something on my left hand and then doing something else with my left hand. But I am going to try that. <laughs> it's really fun. How bad it is. It's really fun. Um, I do it if I'm having especially drama queen moments. <laughs> Where you want to, like, if you want to play an octave bass super low and heavy and then also play a black chord, I might go, like, bass and then chord and be able to hit that chord with both hands at once. Oh, my. It's really fun. Um, Or uh, especially in Buddy System, when it's just a duo with me and Noah, I just took it as a chance to figure out how much I could do as one person. And so I would often do some sustained bass note and then play my left hand above my right hand on the high end of the piano, kind of like you would do in classical music, wow. which is kind of fun. Wow. You know, a little indulgent, but not, it's not for everything. Like I would just do it for moments or make a texture for some really beautiful, smooth, tinkly mm-hmm. thing where I wanted a bass underneath it. I don't know. It's fun to think about. You can do anything you want, really. Well, now I want to come watch you. <laughs> watch you in action. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, or you can play around with yeah. it, you know? Like, that's all we do mm-hmm. is we figure it yeah. out. Just like you use the bass pedal to add that richness mm-hmm. to your playing. Yeah. It's nice. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, it's just, I don't know. It's just, it's, I think putting in a variety um, adds to the lift. Mm-hmm. A variety of, of texture, textures? a variety of textures. Yeah. yeah, because when you change, then then that's the the moment of lift, so to speak. What are some of your favorite textures? Oh goodness! Uh, well, it it just depends um, on on the mood. I think. Uh, yeah. I. Uh, lifting off at the beginning, you know, to, to anticipate a phrase, um, creating a, a smooth texture for smooth jigs, creating, a, you know, a lot of drive. I don't know if those are exactly textures, but those are different approaches. Yeah. I mean, it's a little hard to talk about music in words. Like, mm-hmm. that's the whole point of music is that it doesn't need words. So I know this is a bit of an abstract conversation, yeah. but it's just fun to hear how you think about yeah, it. Yeah. Someone once told me I could give a whole workshop on the overuse of the five chord. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and But that is a way of creating a, a chordal texture, I guess you would say, you know, having that sustained five. Absolutely. And it's a tried and true contra dance trick that should always have a home in poor taste and contra dance music because it's just so fun for the band and the dancers to have those moments. It, it always works. It's just... You know, it's, yeah. you can think, do I dare do this again? And then you do it again, it works again, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like playing for concert dancers. Sometimes I feel like if something's worth doing once, it's worth doing <laughs> twice. Yeah. You know, I might not do that in a concert setting, mm-hmm. but I think it was Anna Patton and Ethan Hazard-Watkins. I went to one of their workshops years ago and they were saying, like, you kind of want to do something twice as long as you think to give the dancers time to like get into it and get used to it. Mm-hmm. You got to be bigger yeah. than you think. Right? I suppose. Yeah. 
sorts of tricks with the Portland mega band? Yes, <laughs> because <laughs> there's so many options, you know. Uh, yeah. The, the biggest thing we do is probably the easiest thing, and it's simply crescendo. <laughs> Dynamic. Yeah, you know, get quiet and then get loud. Um, and so that's, that's one of the – but there's, you know, the – there's all kinds of sections that come in and out. There's harmonies. There's people think of really silly things to do, and we often do them. There's lots of ideas. That's really fun. Yeah. Yeah, there's a few videos of the mega band, which we will link to oh. in the podcast notes as well, and people can watch. Have, is one of those the Can Can video? I don't know. What's the Cam Cam video? <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't give it away. Um, <laughs> well, um, the I guess it was the last time we had the Mega Band dance. We've missed two years in a row now. Um, we did a classical set. This was Eric Weberg's idea. He had been lobbying mm -hmm. for a classical set for a while. And so we played um, 
the William Tell Overture, Rondoella Turca, and I always get the name wrong. It's the Can Can tune. Um, the Infernal Gallop, is that right? I don't think that's quite I don't right. Know. Yeah. Um, so the dance that Eric wrote featured of the Can Can kick in it. Okay. And there, there's quite the prelude to that. So I, I'll be sure to send you a link to that video. That's <laughs> wonderful. Can you sing a little bit of the can can to refresh everyone's memory? <laughs> then the then there's a, that's the A part. The last part. <laughs> that legendary. I, I wanted to sing along with you, but I know that because we're over Zoom, it wouldn't it, be yeah. the time. But everyone at home can sing yeah. along. <laughs> yeah, or or watch, and you'll you'll get vintage Eric Weberg calling if you watch that. Fun. Yeah. Fun. Yeah. Where do members of the Portland Mega Band come from? Are a lot of them new to their instruments? Um. Well, I don't know quite the answer to that. They um, they just appear. And s some of them are new to their instruments because there are no musical requirements for being in the band. Um, mm -hmm. You have to be able to commit to rehearsals and you have to have an instrument, but the band has uh, complete beginners, people who are aiming for one note a measure. And and then it has um, very accomplished players. And there's, there's a space for everybody. Everybody's welcome. And Mm -hmm. And I tell people, I, I really believe this, that um, everybody is creating, the, cre is bringing their energy to the band. You know, regardless of their musical level, everybody is contributing spirit and energy. And it translates, it translates to the dancers. You know, when, when you have 75 people, you know, um, all excited and eager to play at whatever level they're playing. And so it, it creates just... Uh, quite a scene. I mean, that just sounds like joy amplified <laughs> by 75, 85 people. I can't even comprehend. Yeah, it kind of is. We Our rehearsal space is our usual dance hall uh -huh. because the band is big enough that it takes up uh, a good portion of the hall. On the floor of the hall, right? Do you all fit on the stage? Oh, heavens no. <laughs> 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 no, no, we're, uh, we have, um, the rehearsals are always open to, you know, whoever wants to come observe. And so we often have actual, you know, audience sitting on the stage. That's so great. I mean, there's a few mega bands that I know about here on the East Coast. There's Ramen Onions mm -hmm. in the New Jersey area. Yeah. Sorry, I don't know exactly where they are, but around there, mid-Atlantic. There's Roaring Jelly mm -hmm. in Boston. And there's always like the NEFA Festival Orchestra and things like that. But yeah. I'm pretty sure you folks are the largest out of all of them. I, I don't know. Um, Rum and Onions was really helpful to me getting started, by the way. I knew of them. And I, I wrote to them at the beginning saying, you know, I've been tasked with this band. And do you have any suggestions? And they did. They were very helpful. What were some of the helpful tips they gave you? Um, the one that... Uh, has been really good. They said, use individual mics. Don't use area mics. Mm. And um, I think they gave me tips about how to rehearse. It was so long. This was 1996. 
Yeah. So I, <laughs> so I can't remember exactly what they said. I remember about the individual mics, and we started that right away. And they gave me examples of tunes that would work, you know, tunes that have worked well for them. Talked about the rehearsal schedule and just were really supportive. I, I appreciated it very much. Yeah, it's just great when you're starting a new thing just to have peers mm-hmm. to like moral support and give you guidance along yeah, the way. Yeah, and that that was the only similar band to what uh, what we had in mind here. And the 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 first mega band was really scrappy. It was it was twenty five musicians. Uh, in fact, um, the very first rehearsal it. It had been kind of my idea that I'd floated through for Portland Country Dance Community to gather, you know, whoever wanted to play, uh, kind of an all-comers band. And so that languished for a while. And then one New Year's Eve, when they couldn't find any band to play, they said, say, Sue, you know that idea you had about um, whoever wants to play? Do you think you could do it uh, for New Year's Eve? And so I said, yes, if I can be a dictator. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I just thought I could do it, you know, with, I thought I could do it alone, is what we'll say. Now, of course, I'm far from doing it alone. I got lots of help. But anyway, so I asked everybody I knew if they wanted to play, and 25 people said yes. So wow. so we had our first rehearsal, and the first thing we played, I I was just, I thought, this is a terrible idea. This is a, I mean, <laughs> So we tried to set, and one of the musicians turned to me and said, that wasn't very good, was it? <laughs> and I, I had to agree. But I, um, anyway, by, we had two rehearsals, and by the second rehearsal, we were, we were better. But when we played that gig, you know, we called for the fiddles. And so the, the few fiddles would be playing whatever, and the rest of the band would be saying, come on, fiddles, come on, fiddles, you can do it. So that was that was the start. Fun cheerleading section. Yeah. I mean, everything's got to start somewhere, yeah. right? Yeah. And I'm sure people could dance to it. Well, they yeah. Um, everybody liked it. I mean, looking back on it, and we actually have a video of that gig, and we laugh at it when we see it now. Also, it was so long ago. People look at the video and they say, "Now, who could that be? Oh my gosh, it's so and so." Because appearances, you know, have changed over the years. Yeah. So anyway, that's how it started. And it, it grew from there. And then uh, you've been playing for Contradences yourself with Joyride and other groups of people. I have. In a, in a smaller format. Yes. <laughs> uh, what's that been like? What's the Portland Contra scene been like over the last couple of decades you've been playing in it? Um, well, it's like everywhere it's changed. And so I've been playing in Portland since probably the the early 90s. Mm-hmm. And we've always, in that whole time, we've always had a, a dance every Saturday night here. So that, that's been constant. A few more have been added. The Joyride dance is on first Wednesday, and now there's a second Friday and a Thursday dance. Um so dances have increased somewhat. Um, attendance has, for the most part, been pretty good over the years. It's waxed and waned a bit, but pretty constantly well-attended dances. Um, when I first started dancing and playing, um, 
the format of the dances was a lot different than it is now. The, I, and I think it's the same everywhere. Uh, there were always a couple of squares. There was always a circle mixer, uh, usually a Sicilian circle. So you had um, a little more than half that were contra dances and then three or four dances that were something other than contras. And, and everybody danced those very happily. You know, there's a, I don't remember hearing any complaints about, oh no, a circle mixer. Um, but those have gradually fallen away. And I, I think that's too bad because I, I liked the variety. Um, when I started, there were very few dance weekends. Portland had a dance weekend. And there was a dance weekend in Seattle, but they were few and far between. And over the years, um, there's now kind of a dance weekend culture, <laughs> you know, and a bunch of dancers that only go to dance weekends and have kind of abandoned their local dances. Mm-hmm. Um, the local dances here are still doing well. They're, um, like I mentioned, they've, um, they're pretty much all contras all the time. Um, but they, they don't, um, they don't attract the full range of people who dance in Portland because there are a number of people here, as everywhere, that just want to do weekends instead of the local dances. Mm-hmm. So, so there, you know, now there's, um, I mean, there's kind of a social dance weekend culture, you know, where people have their friends from all over the country that they meet at, at weekends. Yeah. And they, they might not know um, their local people as well. That's right. Yeah. Because then there are a lot of local people who never go to dance weekends or can't. That's right. Whatever. Yeah. You know, especially a lot of folks with young kids mm-hmm. or other yeah. applications. Yeah. So there's this, uh, this dichotomy. And when we come out of the pandemic, I, you know, who knows how all that's going to land. Are people still going to want to travel coast to coast and, uh, you know, follow follow bands or callers around or are they going to stick closer to home or come back at all? Who knows? Yeah. yeah. And I mean, there are people already who are starting to travel for the occasional things that are still happening. Um, but it's a question of, is there enough critical mass to start it up on a big mm-hmm. scale? And it is the time, right? And yeah. I'm glad that's outside of the scope of this podcast. Yeah. Oh, I don't seen. want to be the one making those decisions. <laughs> it's we, we all know it's not time yet, yeah. you know? For sure. But, uh, you know, it's funny because we talk about the dance community, but, you know, it's a few different communities that are overlapping and then not overlapping, more like a Venn diagram, Mm -hmm. you know, like the local dances and then the dance weekends and they interact and not, you know, I love the dance weekend community because that's how I've traveled for Mm -hmm. the last 10 years and met people over the country Mm -hmm. and gotten to see a lot of different dance communities and it's it's so cool to be in a different state and then the same dancers are there. Know, isn't that funny? It's such a great weird feeling. Uh-huh. But then there's also just nothing like a community dance where it's literally the people who are your neighbors mm-hmm. and you meet people and then you can hang out with them and be friends with mm-hmm. them and jam with them and so yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting change. It has. And I the music has changed also. You know, from mm. I, I think when I started playing, um, New England style was about the only thing going, or at least the only thing that I was exposed to here in Portland. Uh, I know the yeah. you know Appalachian music was also um, doing fine in that region of the country, 
but here it was the, more connected, I think, to the New England stuff. What was the stuff from New England that you were listening to? Oh, the New England chestnuts. Um. <laughs> yeah, such a good album. Two good yeah, that, those were my very first. Um, oh, I thought of something else about me. Now that, now that yes. just all circling back, this isn't very organized discussion, maybe. So when when I was dancing and not playing um, and heard a tune I liked, which was all the time, I always went running up to the band to find out the name of the tune. And the reason mm -hmm. I wanted to find out the name was because I wanted to look for a recording with that tune on it so I could listen to it some more. <laughs> And I, I was mostly out of luck because there weren't that many recordings at that time. So I, I had the New England Chestnuts, I had Swallowtail, and I had um, the Foregone Conclusions. Yeah, and, another quintessential. Yeah, and band. it seems like there were a couple more. I, um, anything I could get my hands on, I, I bought. I, I had this one set of cassettes, Shaken Down the Acorns by Tony Eldon, the dulcimer player. I loved that. And I listened to this stuff all the time. And um, then I remember, not at the very first of my dancing, but Airplane came out, Rodney Miller. Mm -hmm. You know, and of course that was, the, and so, in fact, my first recordings were LPs, not cassettes. I have the LPs of New England chestnuts. Do you still have that? Yeah, I do. And the I found the oh, sorry, oh I, I was going to say and the foregone conclusions, yeah, collectors yeah. items. I found the um, New England chestnuts LPs at a Pinewoods auction, and I bought them. Oh. And I don't even have a record <laughs> player anymore, but I still have them. Yeah, <laughs> they're great. yeah. I don't have a record player either, but I haven't gotten rid of any of those old uh, things. And then after I got a little more familiar with the music, I. I have like a Jerry Holland LP uh -huh. and a Graham Townsend LP. I didn't know those names at first. You know, they weren't in the forefront of country dance musicians. But as I just learned a little more and could branch out a little more, I, I found these other sources. Yeah, Jerry Holland. I mean, for our listeners who might not be familiar with him, he's a legendary Cape Breton fiddler. And he played in the States and just had such a charismatic presence and he could just make any tune sound great. And I think a lot of the Cape Breton tunes in our Conscience repertoire came to us via Jerry Holland. Mm -hmm. Yeah, written by him or played by him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I remember seeing him in Boston once, and it was just such a great show. It was just so great. Yeah. There's just some people who you're in a room with them, and you just feel so good mm -hmm. about everything. Yeah. I was in Cape Breton a few years ago, and... I, I ended up at a Cape Breton session due to Paul Cranford. I don't know if you know. I, he, yeah, he, he has his publications. Yeah, he that's, that's how I knew him. He was an email acquaintance, you know, lots of shared sources and copyright stuff. Anyway, um, the, the session that I was at was one that was started by Jerry. And the mm -hmm. piano bench had a big Jerry Holland plaque on it. And, and so everybody, I was, I was by far the worst player in the session. They, Paul had brought me a fiddle, and I, um, I, was, I would have been very hesitant to pick it up. But whenever I knew a tune and, and picked up the fiddle, everyone in the session was so excited that I was playing along that I, I felt okay about entering in. But everybody there could play the piano. You know, they all rotated on, on and off the piano bench. And I just thought, I am not saying a word about piano. You know, I can't do this style. 
And I will just be happy sitting here holding my fiddle most of the time. <laughs> it, was, it was really fun. Oh, wow. What a great experience. It was, yeah. You know, speaking of local piano players, um, one of the people who is my biggest kind of mentor slash show me the ropes people was Eric Anderson. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, piano mm-hmm. player from Seattle area. Yep. Um, and the one time, the first time I went to Cape Breton was with Eric, and I was just so grateful for that chance to go mm-hmm. there and see everything and that I'd heard about you know Mm -hmm. it's kind of like the first time I went to California in high school it's like oh this is exactly what I thought California would be like I've like looked at tv shows and culture about it for so long and I felt that at Cape Breton it's just so great Um, but Eric's playing was also a big influence on me and he would come out to the east coast to play with Celticlada with Randy Miller and he was just so welcoming he would let me sit on the piano bench next to him on stage at a dance and watch mm-hmm. what he was doing. And he showed me his tricks and stuff. Mm-hmm. So cool. Yeah, he, he's a really dynamic player, you know, who's who's quite connected to the dance when he plays. Yeah, so. yeah, exactly. Yeah, so we were talking about New England tunes and how they migrated out to Portland and what you first heard and how the music has changed since then. Yes, and then we got a little off track. <laughs> no such thing as off track. We can talk about anything right. we want to. <laughs> yeah, well, there's... But I'll take us back to that. Oh, all right. Well, there were some other ways that it... I mean, I was listening. I guess we all were listening to the New England Chestnuts. But there were people who had moved to Portland from New England and mm. brought their music with them. Actually, um, Creighton Lindsay, who had moved here from Maine and brought a bit of Maine repertoire. And... Uh, a guy named Christy Keevil, who came from uh, Massachusetts somewhere. And he was a caller and musician here for a while. So there was some cross-pollination mm-hmm. early on. Have you seen the music change? Like, I, I assume at some point, while wow, the Asparagus started touring out there. I know George has done yes. things on the West Coast mm-hmm. for a long yeah. time. Well, I know that when they began to come here, which was... Oh, it was pretty early on in my own dancing experience. Uh, a lot of bands then wanted to emulate them. Mm-hmm. And um, in fact, have you heard the term comparagus? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, a friend of mine who I will not name talked about um, an experience that is common to a lot of musicians back then, especially when Wild Asparagus was just starting Um to come, you know, do their national stuff. They'd they'd have a gig and the gig organizer would say, oh, you know, you did a really good job. It was a great dance. Um, so happy to have you here. You know, a week ago, Wild Asparagus was here and we had <laughs> like double the people and always, uh, you know, leave this friend feeling a little diminished. And that's so she came up with the term comparagus. Yeah. So I, yeah, I'm- go ahead. Oh, no, I was, I, yeah, go on. (laughs) Well, anyway, I I haven't heard that so much anymore. I think there are, you know, so when Wild Asparagus started, they were one of a kind and and they still are, you know, they're, they're them and there's no one else like them. But there are also a number of other bands who are super accomplished and play out a lot. So it's, I guess the, you know, the comparison would be across a broader spectrum now. You know, and you could plug any band into that name. You know, your band was fine, but 
Last week, we'll say the buddy system was here. <laughs> and yeah, well, a lot of the Portland dances, you get bands traveling we do. from all over the country, yeah. even for your weekly dance, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, which is how I've gotten to play there a few mm-hmm. times. Yeah. I love the Portland dancers. They're so fun, super oh. friendly and welcoming and high energy. I love it. It's one of my favorite places to play in the whole country. Oh, I'm, I'm glad to hear it. Uh, yeah. And the one time I've seen you, um, which was at Fulton Fulton Park, that's our dance hall. That's our main place. Yeah. That's it's a fun. good spot. What are most of the bands in Portland like these days? If there's, Is there a Portland sound? Uh is that kind of like is that like asking a goldfish what the water is like you know right well maybe maybe and there doesn't have to be you know it just sounds Um, like country music but that's the funny thing about being a touring musician is that when I go play somewhere because I'm the band I never get to hear the other bands which kind of drives me crazy yeah uh well I would say that almost all Portland bands have a piano or keyboard backup that might not be the case everywhere. Um, I don't know. You know, you'd have to ask. Uh, I can't say. I'm sorry. I just, yeah. I I don't know. We play um, all, all of the music in the Pacific Northwest is deeply impacted by fiddle tunes. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, which is this um, usually um, annual event that brings in musicians from all over the continent. Uh, tradition bearers, usually. Quebec, Cape Breton, uh, Appalachia, just uh, Texas, Tex-Mex, even Mexico. Um, and so that filters down through, through everyone here. I, I think the Portland and Seattle sounds would be pretty similar. Yeah, uh, we don't have, at least not yet, uh, much. Um, well, anything much like the buddy system or like um, I'm blanking on the name. Uh, the two guys, perpetual emotion. Yeah, uh, yeah. There, there's not much of that going on here. It's so when you're talking about buddy system, you're talking about the techno. Yeah, 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 buddy yeah. System. yeah. Yeah, and perpetually motion. So you, there's not a lot of like electronic no. influenced country music no. out there. Um, yeah. Portland has like every time there's a fifth Saturday, it's a all comers open band. So mm-hmm. you know between that and the mega band, it's hopefully welcoming to musicians at any level. That's great. Uh, so it's it's probably a pretty deeply rooted in tradition here.
and sounds like a lot of different influences because you know fiddle tunes and you have tunes from all over mm-hmm. the place and all over the country mingling together which is a lot of what the tunes are in the portland collection yeah. there's tunes from all different yes. fiddle traditions mm-hmm. in there so in a way that's kind of reinforced the national sound of contra dance music because a lot of new contra dance musicians go to the portland collections when they want to learn new yeah. tunes <laughs> or just play tunes yeah. that they have in common mm-hmm. with each other yes it has turned out that way <laughs> you know it's funny like we all have our ripples and you know I I think I remember reading you writing that you were just writing down tunes that you were learning as you were learning them and then it sounds like other people started asking you for them and then I'll let you tell the story from there of how that turned into what it is now Uh, the the long story again (laughs) um that's totally up to you (laughs) uh well going back to earlier uh, Yes, I started writing tunes down from the very beginning because I had no idea whether I would be able to remember them. And um, and then it just was a habit that formed very, very quickly. Whenever I learned a tune, I and at that time, I guess that's another thing that's changed um, quite a lot, and maybe part of that's due to the Portland collections. But when, when I started learning, it was all taught by ear. There weren't that many written mm-hmm. sources. And musicians here, George and Clyde and other players, they learned by ear from recordings. Mm-hmm. So that it was it was very much an oral tradition. And so um, pretty soon I had, a, well, pretty soon after a year or two, I had quite a collection of tunes that I had learned. And people started asking me for it. Uh, and people from other places started asking me for it. But... I, I was still a new musician, and um, even though people said, why don't you, you know, turn it into a book, I, I thought, well, who am I to, to create a book of contra dance music? I'm not Randy Miller or, or George Marshall or, you know, I'm, I'm just a, a newcomer who's barely able to play for dances, and how, how audacious to think of um, doing a tune book. So... Anyway, I pretty much dismissed all those suggestions, even though it was obvious there was a lot of interest in this packet of music I had, which I sold only for copying costs. I'd, uh, I'd run it off, you know, I'd, as I added new tunes, I'd go to what was then Kinko's and make new copies and charge people $3.50 or whatever for the copying costs for this whole thing. Um, but um, I... Um, at that time, I was a psychologist with private practice, and I had been looking to get out of the private practice for actually a number of years, but one thing or another kept me from doing that. And one of the things that kept me from doing it was, well, what else am I going to do <laughs> You know, if I don't do this? Um, but there came a point in the practice where every single person who I was seeing was in good shape. Uh, mm. and. And I thought, I could leave. I could leave right now, and no one would be hurt. Mm-hmm. And so even though I didn't know what I was going to do, I, I thought, well, I'm going to take a year off. You know, I will just do it and, you know, kind of reassess my life. And so I, it, it didn't happen right away. You know, it took time to wind down with everybody. But after two or three months, I, I found myself with, without my psychology practice and... Um, wondering what I was going to do. And 
um, I was on a walk, and all of a sudden, these these three things came to me all at once. And it's going to sound a little silly when I say it, but one of the things was, I could do a book. I could do a music book. <laughs> but the reason I thought that, I, I had this other idea, because um, I still knew, this is 1994, I'd only been playing music for four or five years. You know, I'm still really quite a newbie. But I thought, you know, I know I can notate accurately. Mm-hmm. And, and that's all I need to be able to do because the, the music will speak for itself. You know, I don't, I don't have to be an authority on the music as long as I can write the notes down. And I can do that. And then I thought, why don't I ask Clyde if he wants to do it with me, Clyde Curley. Because Clyde, um, who I didn't know very well, but I knew he could write. He was an English teacher. And he had been playing for at least 20 or 30 years at that point. He'd been playing since he was a teenager and playing for dances. He played many instruments in all the genres. And I thought, wow, you know, that would cover all my lack of authority base because Clyde will be able to help with that. And then the third idea I had, and they they just came to me all at once, was, um, you know, if I ask other people in Portland to, if they would let me notate their repertoires, it would be such a much better, you know, broader um, piece of work than um, if I just used my own tunes. Mm-hmm. So those are my ideas. That's what I set out with. Um, I did not own a computer. I had no idea how to use a computer. Wow. <laughs> so that was another early decision. Do I want to do this on computer? Um, so... Um, so Clyde and I started out, and Clyde um, was um, the first thing he said to me. He came over to our house and slapped down his notebook on our table. And he says, you think anyone will actually buy this? Because <laughs> he, he did not see any use for a music book. He was a, a total ear player. And he couldn't imagine that anyone would want to learn music by reading a book. That was just beyond him. But, but the idea of doing some research on the tunes, you know, and finding out more about the tunes and being able to write that part down, that part appealed to him. The notation part did not. Um, so it, so neither Clyde nor I are very good music readers, and that ended up being an advantage in a weird way because in order for the two of us to be able to read this music, it had to be, like, super clear. Mm. Or we couldn't we couldn't deal with it. So if there was anything that was confusing about the notation, I had to fix it because Clyde and I couldn't use it. Yeah. So so anyway, I asked um, I asked all the bands in Portland, and there were, gosh, five or six at that time. They all said yes. Mm-hmm. And then, oh. I also got in touch with Bill Matheson, who I didn't know. <clears throat> oh, Bill! I didn't know him then, I, and asked him for help, you know, on how to contact composers, how to deal with copyrights, because Waltz Book One was out at that time. Yeah, for our <laughs> listeners, Bill is the person who released the Waltz mm-hmm. books, of which there are now four. Mm-hmm. Am I right? Mm-hmm. So, he was working on Waltz Book Two when I got in touch with him. And so he was just, excuse me, immensely helpful Mm -hmm. as far as helping me figure out how to go about things. 
And, and, and I just asked everybody for ideas. Um, you know, oh, in fact, I, I made samples. Once I, um, once I had learned how to notate and learned, you know, figured out how to use a computer and all that stuff, um, I, I made samples of um, possible notations, different sizes, different fonts, and laid them out in front of anyone who would take a look at them and saying, what, what one do you like? And so I got two guiding principles. <clears throat> um, one person said, I want to be able to um, read the music from the floor. <laughs> uh -huh, yeah. So make it big enough that I could um, put it on the floor and read it. Now, that was years ago when we were younger, and I don't know if, <laughs> if our aging <laughs> eyes can still read the music from the floor. But at, uh, at one time, we could. Someone else said, I want it to be small enough so that I can get three of them on one eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper in a medley. So, yep. We used to do that. I'll talk for a second. Yeah. You can have a drink of yeah. water. But we used to do that in my first contra dance band. I didn't know any tunes and I had to accompany them. And so a lot of the tunes they played were in the Portland collection. And so I would go to work and photocopy each page and make my little copy and paste medleys. And I had a whole binder of them in the beginning. Wow. Like so many of us have done yeah. that. Yeah. And you could get three on a page, couldn't you? As long as they were. I could. <laughs> well. As long as they were four part tunes. <laughs> right. Yeah. So you've got, uh, you've got a musician in Portland to thank for that. Uh, that, <laughs> that bit. So anyway, um, we just, um, that we had, I can't, we, a little more than 300 tunes. We decided not to print any that could be um, found easily in a couple of different sources. So if a tune was in O'Neill's and Cole's and the New England Fiddler's Repertoire, no matter how good a tune, it wasn't going to be in the Portland Collection because people could find it elsewhere. Yeah. So the Portland Collection isn't exactly like a literal snapshot of what people were playing in Portland at the time. Because there's probably a lot of common tunes, like New England tunes, for mm -hmm. example, that didn't end up in there because it wasn't necessary to put them in the book. Yes. And another way that it's not um, representative of what was played in Portland then is any tune with the composer is the composer's version, not what we play ah. here. So um, and if it was way different than how we played it in Portland, I would put an alternate version in. Mm -hmm. But um, but the most composers wanted the tune printed the way they wrote it. You know, they would say, yeah. "I don't care how it's played, but this is this is how I intended it. So this is how I'd like you to print it." That was one of my favorite things about the Portland collections when I was learning is like looking at the alternate versions oh. of tunes and just you know le learning about the folk process. You know, now we know there's infinite versions yes. of tunes. <clears throat> But in the beginning, it's easy to think, well, this tune just goes this way and everyone plays it the same way. And obviously, there's a billion different versions of tunes. Mm -hmm. There's as many versions as there are people who play them. Um, and reading the back where you talked a little bit about the origins of each tune, I took that book and I put it on my nightstand and I would read the little blurbs about the tunes before I went to bed at night like a magazine. <laughs> Does that mean they were putting you to sleep? <laughs> uh, no, I had some good reading. <laughs> okay, I, I was, I was, when people tell me that. I always say, oh, thank you, I'll tell Clyde, you know, because he, but then I thought, well, if you're using him for bedtime reading, you know, do I want to tell him that? <laughs> but yeah, for me, that's my me time, oh, that 15 okay. minutes before I fall asleep is when I can read about whatever I want. Uh, 
So it's true. I can't read fiction before bed because I'll just stay up all yeah, night finishing it yep. if it's yep. a, you know. So it has to be nonfiction. Mm-hmm. So these are great because they're little stories, but they're little bite-sized nuggets. And you read a few and then you get tired yep. and then, you know. You can quit anytime. <laughs> yeah, and then it's right there. But, like, I really was just so fascinated with this idea of, like, learning what how tunes get passed from person to person and how they change in the process. Mm-hmm. Cause it's just like a, a story about how we're all connected mm-hmm. through this tradition, yeah. which is really beautiful. Yeah. yeah, I, I agree. It's, it's that, that was one of the fun things is tracing some of these back to their source. And, and um, on many occasions, especially in the second and third book, the source would turn out to be a, an actual composer, you know, who'd gotten lost along the way. <laughs> Yeah, you probably got to meet and chat with a lot of interesting people Many. while you're putting this together. Many, yes. I, I have some very good composer stories, probably not fit for um, you know, <laughs> massive broadcasting. <laughs> <laughs> Someday you can release some memoirs yeah. and you can share mm-hmm. those stories. Yeah. <laughs> or not. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Now that you're kind of on the other end of this, and there are now multiple Portland collections, and now, as you know, they're all over the country. Um, how does that, I don't know, how do, I don't know how to ask this question, but like, what's that like? Like, how has the effect been for you as a person and also in the Contra world from your perspective? Wow. Um, well, I know more about that than what's music like in Portland. <laughs> um <laughs> I will say that when when the first book came out, we we released it at the at the Folklife Festival. Um, I was completely overwhelmed by the response because it was it was just instant. I you know I sold out of everything that I took up there and had orders that I took home with me that I couldn't fill and people coming up to me, um, you know, congratulating and wanting to know more about it and I. I was just not prepared for anything like that at all. Mm. And um, and I so at first it was like surprise. And I, I remember um, shortly after it was it came out, I, I got a phone call from someone in Maine who wanted to know how they could get a copy. And I said, well, how how did you even find out about this? And, you know, this is way before Facebook and social media. It was 1997. So, um, and they said, well, I, they said, I, I work on a crew of a, a ship. And a whistle player was playing out of the book. And I thought it was the most beautiful music I'd ever heard. <laughs> and so I, I want a copy for myself. And I, I was thrilled and amazed because the a driving force behind it really was that I wanted I, I just loved the music so much and I thought other people would love it too if only they had a, a an exposure to it because at the time it was still except for Fiddler's Fake Book and Coles and um, New England Fiddler's Repertoire it was still mostly an oral tradition um, mm-hmm. and and that was a roadblock to a lot of people and I, I just thought it deserved a wider audience. I, I think I was really motivated by wanting people to be able to enjoy the music that I was so crazy about. And so that 
that sort of early validation from that whoever that was who called me from Maine. I have no idea if they ever learned the music or anything. But I thought, wow, yeah, you know, this is why I did it. So um, I've had some amusing experiences uh, being places where everybody's got their Portland collections out and they don't realize that I'm Susan Songer. And <laughs> I, I have to say that very tongue-in-cheek. Um, so that's, that's been interesting. I, um, I know that it has enabled many people to um, have access to the music and be able to play it. And I'm, I'm really, really happy about that because that was the whole point in the first place. I, I'm stunned that it has become as widespread as it did. Um, in fact, um, I think before, yeah, before it even came out, um, I was on a road trip with David Kaner, and we were we were calculating. Now, if every country dance musician in the United States should buy this book, how many would that be? <laughs> and we figured, we said, well, let's just say um, there are 50 musicians per state, you know, figuring that there's like 300 in Massachusetts and um, two in some other states. <laughs> and we'll just average it out to 50. And that would be 2,500 books. If, wow, you know, could that possibly happen? And of course it has uh, to our shock. But but I'm, I'm glad. I, I'm glad that so many people, you know, want to learn the music and uh, have the books. I My wish is that people would use the books as a, a starting point and not a stopping point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, that it could, and, and that won't happen. You know, it it just doesn't because people have all different, you know, reasons for wanting to play and learn the music. And um, so for many, um, you know, reading the tunes off the page, that'll be great. And that's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's it gives them pleasure and they have exposure to the music and, or they have exposure to the written music, I'll say, you know, because uh, um, I'm still led by ear. Um but my, my hope is that it um, could inspire people also to um, experiment with it, to, to learn farther than, than the books, uh, to feel free to vary it. I, <clears throat> um, I don't like it when people think of the version in the Portland collection as, well, that's the way it goes, you know, because that's how yeah. it's written down. No, 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 that, that is not correct. That's, that's the way it was once upon a time for one person. <laughs> Yeah, and it seems like in in putting the Portland collection together, there's only so much you can do to worry about whether something is the quote unquote right version of a tune, if unless it's by a modern composer mm -hmm. that you mm -hmm. know. But otherwise, I imagine you put in the version that is submitted to you. Because how do you vet what is the one version of a tune? It, it's not. It doesn't exist. No, in you're, a lot of you're, cases. you're right. You're right. And we did. We we put in the version of whoever sent it to us unless they had gotten it from someone else in Portland. You know, uh -huh. uh, so we we tried to get it back to the Portland source, whoever that was. But that's, if that's the way they play it, then that's what, uh, that's what we printed. Yeah. I will say, do you? Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, no, go ahead. Well, I, I had to completely redo the first Portland collection. I had to enter it from scratch um, a few years ago because the when it was first printed it was printed from hard copy 
Um, wow. And so there were six or seven runs on the hard copy. And then the printer said, we can't get another run out of this. Um, you're going to have to give us what is now called camera ready, you know, an electronic version uh, or new hard copy. Um, I couldn't do it because the program that I had used was completely defunct. It, it wow. hadn't upgraded with computer upgrades. So I had to get a, I got Finale, and I had to notate everything from scratch again. So much work. <laughs> yes, it was. But when I was doing that, um, Clyde and I made the decision to only change outright mistakes, and we found plenty to change. Um, we'd look at a tune and say, if we don't play it, why did we put those chords on it? Good grief, those are bad chords. Or, you know, <laughs> we, we don't play it like that anymore. But we, we had to um, overcome this really strong urge to change, you know, to what we considered maybe better in some cases or, you know, just more current. Uh, but we didn't do it. We kept, we kept the original as it was unless it was a mistake. Yeah. And... But, it, you know, just looking back when we did that, it, it was really obvious how so much of it had changed over time. Is that in the way that people were playing the tunes was different? Or mm -hmm. like, what were some of those changes? Oh, yeah, a lot. Well, for me, you know, I I might use the whatever's written down as some kind of starting point. And then I'm talking about fiddle now, so I'll be playing away. And um, I'll start playing the tune with someone else, and I'll say... Where'd that version come from? And they'll say the Portland collection, you know, and so. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. And it would have been, it was probably how I started out with it. <laughs> but I, you know, I, for whatever reason, probably as much because I forgot how it was supposed to go as anything else. Or maybe something was too hard for me to play and I, you know, found an easier way to get around a certain passage. So I'd, I just made changes and then I totally forgot because, you know, I'd left the, the dots behind. Um, quite a long time ago. So um, I don't know that they were improvements, although I will say some of the chords that we um, we had played but did not put in were improvements. Uh, um, they were just different. And so those will never be written down because they... <laughs> yeah. It's like a lot of us have experienced that feeling of like you go to a session... And they're playing a tune, and then there's someone at the session who is like, like someone will say, "Oh, let's play the name of this tune." And like, oh, I know how that goes, and they assume they know how it goes, and they play their version, and they kind of forget to listen to what the mm -hmm. other people are playing, and so there's like two different versions yeah. of the tune going on. Yeah, you know. And so, what's cool about the Portland Collection is it's not trying to be, at least doesn't seem to be trying to be like a definitive anything. Mm -hmm. Like you say, it's a starting mm -hmm. point. Where I can be like, oh, I learned this tune this way from the Portland Collection, but here they're playing it this exactly. way. And you always have to keep that listening brain on mm -hmm. to be like, in this place, in this moment, this is how we're going to play yes. it. But having a rough start of how the tune goes, you have the outline of the tune in your mind, and often that's helpful. Sometimes that's confusing <laughs> yeah. if you already think you know a tune. Yeah. You know. But I think a lot of people you know, may come to the Portland collections and they're used to playing sheet music. Like they learned Suzuki as a mm -hmm. kid or written sheet music as a piano student or whatever. And so they have that mentality of, well, this is how it goes. But then, like you say, as you get deeper into the music, 
you you learn more about how tunes work and you mm-hmm. learn how to play with other people yeah. and you learn that it's just a suggestion and yeah everything should be taken with a grain of salt mm-hmm. and you know it's just interviewing sam bartlett a couple oh. weeks ago and you know he writes a lot of tunes and he's like he doesn't even agree with his own notation <laughs> of his own tunes oh. you know it's like how do you even write out your own tunes when mm-hmm. you write them mm-hmm. you know it's just a starting off point yeah. but i think it's can do you have an estimate of how many books you've sold oh gosh total? um you know that that's one of the things I could have researched it didn't. That's very hard. I can I have all that information, but the reason it's hard is because every printing has a different number of books printed in it. For instance, the first printing uh-huh. was thousand books. The second printing, and I'm just talking about Portland one, was fifteen hundred. At some point, I went to four thousand per printing, and uh, it's I don't even have to look, run over and grab a copy to see what printing it's on. It's on the ninth or tenth. So, so, so even just order of magnitude, we're in the tens of, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, so it's, it's sold many and I, of course I have all that documented, but I don't have it. This is so cool. Think of all those. There's so many contra musicians out there. Look at all the people who want to play contra tunes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fun way to track that. I mean, some of them are bought by camps and festivals Mm -hmm. and a lot of people share and a lot of people never buy one and they photocopy Mm -hmm. them. Which we should add is it's good to give your money to the publishers yeah, and the composers of the tunes. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you have inherited a bunch of photocopies, just go out and buy a book and then you can support yeah, the cause. Yeah. Um, but that's it's a fun. Obviously, it was a need that the community didn't even necessarily know it had. And you weren't necessarily trying to answer that need, except that you needed it. Yes. And there were a lot of people like you who also needed yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, it, it was it filled a niche. Yeah, it yeah. really did. Um, and so I, I was just lucky that way, um, you know, to to have the time, you know, I'd taken that year off. I never went back to being a psychologist, by the way. Um, um, but I, I didn't know, of course, that that was, you know, just like when I notated that first tune at the my very first um, teaching session that I ever went to, I had no idea what that was going to lead to. Um, I, I didn't know when I began that what was supposed to be a year off that I'd never go back but that's the way it worked yeah. out yeah yeah and it would be interesting to combine that with a snapshot of like I'd just be curious to take a snapshot in each of these different regional areas like what is a snapshot of what people are playing mm-hmm. at any one moment you know like which is not exactly the purpose of the Portland collections but it is a it's the funny thing about when you put things in a book is that it becomes a snapshot of what was played mm-hmm. in a place, but then that also becomes what is played yes, in a place yes. because it becomes an easy point of reference for people. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, it's important for us not to also lose the tunes in our local traditions mm-hmm. that aren't in the collections. Yes. And so whether that means everybody make their own regional pamphlet that they spread, mm-hmm. send out to people or like a PDF if you're having an open band or something where there's sheet music available for the tunes that aren't in the Portlands or whether we do more and more Portlands mm-hmm. or, you know, whether there becomes other versions of it, yeah. you know, that other people put out. But I just think I, to me, it's so fascinating to take a snapshot of what tunes are being played and why and how tunes they have weird lives of their own, like little celebrities where they go in and out of style. <laughs> yes. And they get forgotten mm-hmm. about or they get overplayed and then nobody wants to yep. play them. And and I'm sure the Portland collections have affected their life trajectories yeah, I, in lots of different ways. Well, I'm imagining that, 
you know, when you we go back and think about change, changes over the years, that the music has gotten a little more homogenized um, across the country. From what it was, mm-hmm. say, in the '80s, when there wasn't there wasn't nearly as much opportunity, you know, for cross pollination. People weren't traveling. We didn't have the weekends. People weren't traveling as much. Um, uh, there wasn't social media where people shared stuff back and forth. There weren't Portland collections. Now there are all these things that make sort of a national repertoire more possible. And when I'm, you probably have. Um, experience this that when you are at a weekend somewhere new the music that's being played by the locals is uh often pretty familiar to you often (laughs) not always yeah Yeah, it's it's fun i mean sometimes i go to communities where there's a lot of old-time music Mm -hmm. and i know some Mm -hmm. of the old-time tunes but i'm not an old-time musician and so there's a lot of tunes i don't Mm -hmm. know and that's always fun and then you know there's a lot of tunes that are in the portlands and we all know them and love them Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and then I think there's this funny thing of, of like for some of these quote unquote hotshot bands, as we've referred mm-hmm. to them, you feel almost this pressure to play tunes that aren't published anywhere oh. to make mm-hmm. yourselves cool or interesting <laughs> or just fresh or, or maybe you just want to feel fresh. I'm not saying it's like a snobby mm-hmm. thing, you know, like in, in my bands, I, I don't know. I'm a piano player. I'm not a fiddler, but I love finding new tunes. It's just so fun to like hunt for them. It's like picking wildflowers <laughs> or something, you know? Uh-huh. And, and there's just this cool feeling of like, I found this new tune mm-hmm. and it's really old, but nobody plays uh-huh. it and it's not published anywhere. And it's like ours uh-huh. for uh-huh. a while, but you can't let that come at the expense of the tradition. Mm-hmm. You also have to work in these really great traditional tunes and, and, you know, the ones that are in the books are in the books often for a reason, or they were really cool once mm-hmm. and nobody wants to play mm-hmm. them now. And that's also yeah. okay. You know, yeah. it's just funny thinking about them that way. So where do you look for tunes when you go hunting? Uh, I mean, I used to learn a lot of tunes from recordings when I was starting. Mm-hmm. Like it's easy to learn tunes from books. I used to sight read tunes from the Portland collections, but that's not learning the tune. That's learning the shape of the mm-hmm. tune. That's like a two-dimensional silhouette of a tune. It's not yeah. the tune. Mm-hmm. And so you learn a tune in a recording, and then I would find five or six different recordings of the same tune of different people mm-hmm. and try to learn it that way. Now my favorite way is just to learn them from people. Mm-hmm. It's like the only yeah. way. So I'm I'm back to where Clyde has always been, right? Oh. <laughs> it's like... like uh, He's been there this whole time, but I just love learning a tune from a person and having the story and the place and their style mm-hmm. and those memories mm-hmm. all mixed up together. Yeah. It's the best. And then when I teach it to someone or they get it from me at a session by accident or we play it at a dance and I'm like, I just recorded that. What was that? Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> I can be like, well, I learned it from uh-huh. this person and they learned it from them. And that's my favorite. Yeah, I agree. That's also my favorite. It's really wonderful to have a person to um, you know associated with the tune, and often it's not only a person, but it's the whole context that the person mm-hmm. was in. Maybe it was four o'clock in the morning at some session, and um, someone started a tune that you learned, or maybe you know it could be anywhere. But but that whole thing comes back with the tune. Yeah. But then I love having friends, and I'm not so much one of these people. I do it a little bit, but people who love to find old books of tunes mm-hmm. 
Because learning tunes from people doesn't help us remember the tunes we have all forgotten that exist yeah. that are great tunes. And so I love having friends who are like, oh, I was in the Ralph Page library mm-hmm. and I found these old New England tunes that nobody yeah. plays or found this like old book of tunes from Brittany or, you know, whatever it is. Or yeah. people who read through all of Cole's fiddle tunes mm-hmm. and like, this one's cool. Nobody plays it. Uh-huh. And so... Yeah. Keeping them in the tradition yeah. if they're good enough to stick uh-huh. around. And like, there's a lot of really great old obscure recordings. Mm-hmm. You know, like I know people who like collect old obscure recordings of Irish music. And there's just so many mm-hmm. good tunes on there that don't get played. Yeah. Yeah. I like listening to those too. I like listening to all the scratches and, uh, you know, the poor recording quality and sometimes questionable backup players. <laughs> but it, it, it just creates a, you know, an atmosphere for me. The, the, that I, I, I like to experience. Thank you. 
I would be curious to talk with you now about the book that you did of David Kaner's tunes. Oh. Um, a lot of us haven't heard much about it because it's so new. Oh, I'd love to yes. hear about it. Well, um, where to start? Uh, it's It has three parts. So the tunes are one part, but there is also a lot of autobiographical information. And then there's a whole section on his dances. So have, have you seen the book at all? I've never seen it in okay. person, no. Have you, have you seen me hold up pictures of it? No. Okay, so I'm going to do that, and I'm sorry for all the listeners. We might want to um, edit this out, but I'm going to go. We'll take a, I'll take a snapshot, okay. and we'll post okay. it on the podcast. Um, okay, well... I can actually send you files of this stuff because what, what I want to show you is the art. Um, so David was quite a graphics artist and there are, there's one. Oh, his calligraphy. Yes, and I'm just kind of thumbing through. Um, there's one. And I get to one of my favorite ones. So Susan's holding this book up, and it's all the uh, dance flyers and his yeah. like, hand-inked calligraphy and things yes, like that. So, yeah. so it sounds like you've interspersed those throughout there, the book. There are about 30 of them in the book. Um, yeah, where's my, oh, here's another. Anyway, that's probably enough to give you a sample of what they're like. But I can... I can, can you... Uh, can you hold one up in front of the camera, and I'll take a snapshot of yeah. it to share with people. Yeah, but I can also send you the actual file that's got this on it. It's fun, uh, the snapshot <laughs> of our Zoom call, because it has your face in it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and then we can add both of them. Yeah, so I'll, I'll send some. So, um, David, I, I've known David for a long time. Uh, he's, he was a good friend and um, music partner as well and so when he got his ALS diagnosis I asked him you know when Clyde and I finished book three I I said I would never do another book and mm -hmm. in fact Clyde asked he said can I write the first sentence of book three saying this is our last book I said <laughs> yes you can it's my it's our last book but somehow when when David got his ALS diagnosis I I just felt this big desire to um, put everything he'd done in a book. And it turned out to be a lot more than I, I had bargained for, we could say. So he, he, wrote, um, he wrote as much of his autobiography as he could, but he didn't start writing until he was confined to bed and couldn't, mm. couldn't travel and play anymore. And so he, he wrote, here's, I've got a lot of pictures of him from his family. So after he had written maybe half or only a third of his autobiography, he lost his ability to type. And he was reduced to using eye gaze technology. So he had other people finish up that part for him, which in a way is good because they probably wrote more about him than he would have written about himself. So other people wrote about his involvement at Ashokan Northern Week and uh, the John C. Campbell Folk School and uh, the fiddle orchestras that he led. So that's all in there. Then we have his music, 70-some um, tunes that he wrote, and 50 
some harmonies that he wrote for his tune. So that's one. Oh, neat. Yeah, that's one unique feature of the the music is David was known for his harmony playing. So like here's a, you can see there's the the actual tune and the harmonies below it. Uh, and then he published in the early 90s a little, he called it a booklet called Calling for Beginners by Beginners. Yeah. And so that entire book is also in here. Okay. And then anything with this line around it is from Calling for Beginners. And then at the end, there are 50-some dances that he wrote. So it's all in all 296 pages, eight and a half by 11. There's, there's lots of quips and stories and anecdotes and humor. Um, and people tell me that uh, David's voice is coming through very clearly in the book. I'm, I'm really happy about that. So, oh, another feature is that um, David wants his music to be all freely available to anyone who wants it, no copyrights. So we took the copyrights off it. He had one tune that was BMI, uh, mm -hmm. removed the BMI, um, and eventually I am going to put PDFs of all of his music on my website. People can just download them for free. Oh, that's that's what wonderful. Yeah, that's what he wanted. So um, that finished in July. I started it in November of 2018. And uh, when I could, when I could rope him in to help me, <laughs> David is a moving target. He was a very busy guy, you know, with uh, music on his mind all the time, as in playing music, not sitting down to talk about it. Um, right. So, anyway, I was I was able to um, capture him. <laughs> uh, and nail him down uh, several times for you know for we could really map things out along the way and and I, I sent him sample copies along the way too and um, he the last one he had was almost complete maybe eighty five percent complete. What an amazing feeling to like see that in front of you you know it's kind of like you're part of your life's work. Yeah, in one place. Un unexpected. Yeah, I um now I really am not going to do another book, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but this one was uh, it's it kept me very connected to David, you know, from his diagnosis through his death. And yeah, how did you originally meet him? Well, he came to the Northwest a lot, um, beginning oh, probably in the early nineties, and. He started st spending a couple months a year out here, and he traveled between Portland and Seattle. And a lot of it was gig motivated, and a lot of it was personal relationships motivated. And so, on one of those trips, and maybe I told you this about him, I can't remember, but my first evening when I had the piano entirely to myself was with David. And that's kind of funny, you know, it, it, it makes sense that it wasn't with a Portland person because we have so many here. But, yeah. but that was my, my first whole piano dance was David and George Pank and a cello player, Fred Nussbaum. And so that combination worked and we, anyway, from there on, I just started playing with him um, whenever he came to the Northwest and we played all kinds of places. You know, from church basements to Little Grange Halls to 
folk life and big dances and everything in between. <clears throat> um, and then I, I traveled to the East Coast. I did a bunch of stuff with him there also. Um, so anyway. What did you do out on the East Coast? Well, once I played the flurry with him, I did two New England tours with him and two different bands. Um, we had a band, The Time Zones. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Apt. <laughs> yeah. And so Rex Blazer and Peter Siegel were in that band. That formed up at uh, Fiddle Tunes one year. That's some fun personalities yeah. in that yeah. band. Yeah. So anyway, the Time Zones did both a Northwest tour and a New England tour. And then I did the uh, John C. Campbell Dance Musicians Week with David uh, for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And that group also did a New England tour. Um, Naomi Morse was in it at the time. And then Naomi was replaced by Betsy Ranch. And so... Um, there was a New England tour with that group and then a bunch of Southern stuff with um, the the Betsy version of John Campbell. So anyway, and I've been I visited him in Montague a bunch. Anyway, so from from his trips out to the Northwest, there arose all this other stuff. And we just hit it yeah. off. You know, he stayed here with my husband and me many, many times. Yeah. Yeah, it seemed like he really had a home on the West Coast. I remember um, playing a dance weekend with him on the West Coast. Ooh. And it was like you walk in and he just knows all the dancers like he lives there. And for us, it's like, I don't know, one of our first couple of oh. times. And I'm like, whoa, David, you have this whole other life that we don't know about. It's true. He he does. Uh, he did. Yeah. It's really cool. And not only in Portland, but, uh, well, I think Portland and Seattle were the biggest chunks of his time away from New England, but he, he went a number of other places too on a regular basis. Yeah, there, there aren't a lot of callers like him these days. You know, like I remember, especially at that dance weekend, I remember him like telling a lot of stories from the mic and jokes. Oh, and yes. He's got this pretty casual conversational vibe going on. And... It's funny, at Dance Weekends, not all dancers want that. They want to just dance, mm -hmm. dance, dance. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I think it's a shame. I understand that they want to dance. But on the other hand, you've got these callers in front of you who just have so much to offer. Mm -hmm. and, and also, he knows, you know, he would know that when he's talking, it's giving a chance for other people to be talking mm -hmm. as well. Like he's, it's like part of setting a tone of everyone is welcome and everyone can be comfortable, even if you're not a fancy dancer, yes. by making the whole thing feel a little bit more relaxed. Yes. Well, but just like we talk about tunes, not a lot of not all dance weekend dancers want that energy. Mm -hmm. They want it tight and they want it polished. They want the newest dances mm -hmm. with the coolest choreography. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, one one interesting feature of doing this book um, on David's dances section, you probably know that he never wrote any of his dances down. That's not quite true. He wrote a few of them down. So when yeah. when it came to collecting his dances, um, I put out a call for you know on Facebook or wherever. Um, anyone who has collected any of David's dances, would you please send them to me? And so people from all over the country sent me dances that they were pretty sure David had written that they had written down. And then uh, I, have you come across Gumby, Kristen Falk? Yeah. Okay. So she wanted to help. And she took this huge mass of dances 
and figured out, you know, eliminated all the duplicates, uh, figured out which ones really were David's, and David helped with that too. So he um, he only provided a small number of the dances. The the bulk of them were provided by other people who'd who'd heard them. <laughs> that's really cool. But but he did guarantee that the everything that's in this book he really did write. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Came out of his brain yep. at some point, mm-hmm. even if he didn't write yeah. it down. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's like I didn't get to work with David nearly as much as some folks, but, you know, the times I was on stage with him and he's a caller, I just love that feeling of like, what should we do now? And then he'll stop and think and then he'll raise his index finger and be like, I've got it, you know, just the thing for this moment. And that's not always a polished thing. Like sometimes there are callers who will like plan their entire program out in advance so they can Mm -hmm. transition quickly from one to the next and it's all very efficient. And he was sort of a person of the moment. Yes. But how many callers can have that repertoire of dances in their head and just have a database of hundreds of dances to choose from and then know the tunes and be able to play fiddle along with them and understand how they work together and be able to create so much fun for people? Yeah. Well, it's a special thing. Well, he was also a musician of the moment. And one yeah. of the things that I, I liked, well, my, you mentioned my band Joyride earlier. That is a very um, rehearsed band, you know, not that everything is planned uh-huh. out, but we know how we're going to transition between all the tunes. And, you know, we know what the endings are going to be like. It's one that we have a lot of details worked out. And, and I enjoy mm-hmm. that because it gives us a polished sound. Um, mm-hmm. With David, there was rarely a rehearsal. Um, <laughs> or a set list or anything. And so it was all just winging it. Um, and in fact, we did a we did a whole Lady of the Lake week um, without a set list. Or, wow. <laughs> um, and, and so there, there's something kind of exhilarating about that too. Now, I'm sure it wasn't as polished as, as it could have been. It probably wasn't even as good as it could have been if we rehearsed. But there, there's something, there's a certain energy, you know, of, that comes from spontaneity and, um, you know, maybe relief when, oh, you know, wow, we do know this tune after all. Um, so <laughs> so it, it creates a kind of energy of its own. And I, I enjoyed that. You know, it was uh, sometimes a little nerve wracking. I always wanted to do well. And, you know, I hate fishing for chords. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> which it would sometimes put me in the position of, but, but in all, I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. I mean, most of us can't even keep our tune list in our heads. Like if somebody's at a dance without a tune list on stage, I would just forget every tune I ever knew. I forget that I know them, you know, you need the tune list to Mm -hmm. remember. And just the fact that he could keep all that in his head and truly be spontaneous with it. Yep. Takes a lifetime to get to Mm -hmm. that place. Yeah. Yeah, and sometimes um, when he could have done it differently, you know, with a little more preparation, I will never know. But I think that he, uh, on purpose, didn't because he enjoyed that uh, kind of seat of the pants aspect of it all. Mm-hmm. I, I I think that that energized him to just kind of go with the moment. Mm-hmm. And so as a it's just like, hang on, you know, this is a David Kainer gig. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's his own animal. Yeah. 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 And I'm not, you know, just to be clear, I'm not trying to say that one of these is like better than the others. Like 
polish or not polish. That's not the point. Like, there sh shouldn't even be a concept of better necessarily. They're just all different ways of doing it. And it's the wonderful diversity of our tradition. But when you talk about the homogenization of mm -hmm. things, especially with dance weekends where people are traveling across the country, you get used to this is the one way that it's done. Mm -hmm. Fancy bands with fancy yeah. arrangements and collars yeah. with brand new freaking complicated mm -hmm. choreography mm -hmm. and one walkthrough. And if there's two walkthroughs, the dancers get mad. And then beginners don't always know how to fit in a dance mm -hmm. weekend. And, you know. Yeah. And so I'm not trying to say one's better than the other. I like them all at different times. I do too. And, you know, it brings me back to Joyride, which does, you know, we, there's a guitar player and me. So we, we coordinate our chords. We know how to follow each other if we veer off script. Uh, but we, we have agreed on a, you know, a set of chords that we're going to use for each tune, at least at one point. Yeah. And, and it's, it's fun to, um, to really focus on the music and think of what we can do in transitions and and other things, you know, to really um, push that end of it, which is the opposite end of spontaneity. Um, but but that's also rewarding when we can really focus on something and think about it and come up with something that's pleasing to us and hopefully to people dancing to us. Yeah, and and. You know, it, it's not even necessarily less spontaneous, sometimes just a different kind of spontaneity where I find that in a band, if you're all trying to flounder around to stare at each other for the transition, then you can't watch the dancers mm -hmm. or watch the floor during yeah. that moment, or you might be uneven as a band. And so, you know, if you if you have those musical moments smoothed out, then you can be there for the mm -hmm. dancers. That's true. And guide them through that mm -hmm. moment. Mm -hmm. And you can be spontaneous in that way of like playing off of them. It's hard to play off the dancers when you're not connected with yeah. them. So I think there's a big difference between bands who are really arranged, but it's like a concert and the dancers are irrelevant. Oh, mm -hmm. You know, they're just there to make noise and ruin oh. everyone's experience. <laughs> Versus bands who have arrangements, but the arrangements actually also help the dance mm -hmm. in some ways, yeah. too. That's our goal. You know, we're thinking of that's that's our thought. Yeah. Is to serve the dance experience. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. We we do put a lot of thought into that. Into you know what kind of mood do we want to create with this set? Um, uh, what's the ramp of the energy? Um, what's the phrasing like? You know, are all these tunes going to work together? That that kind of thing. What is your favorite way to make a medley? What are some medley kind of ideas that you um, use? We. Uh, well, I'll talk about the mega band because that's because okay. <laughs> um, that kind of applies to everything. In in the mega band, I almost always start with the the final tune. Most of the tunes are three tuned. Most of the medleys are three tuned sets. A few two tunes. So, so I'll um, I'll have the final tune in mind. I also for the mega band, and this I guess it's not really representative of how we do things in other bands. There's all this. Um, ground I need to cover, um, you know, different genres, uh, different styles that, that would pertain to any gig, you know, but you have a larger list to choose from, from the mega band. There's just the 11 sets that we're going to play. Um, but I usually start with the end tune and think of the phrasing. Um, is it long phrase, short phrase, and then choose tunes with, similar phrasing um, 
to to build up to that end tune. Um, and often that means going to the same genre. Like if, uh, if we're ending with, Oh, I'll just throw out Edmund Perizzo, you know, which we've never done. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, <laughs> well, Mega Man has never played Edmund Perizzo, but it could. Really? Yeah, no, we never have. Why? Um, How is that possible? <laughs> I don't know. It's just never come up. Um, so uh, when I think of Edmund Perizzo, okay, you know, that has got the um, four chord on the B part and the balance. So what other tunes are going to match that and have, you know, uh, an energy in that same place? Uh, a part longer phrased, B part, you know, more zippy. So I'm going to look at other Quebec tunes probably that have that, that same structure. So that's, that's kind of how I think of things. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't have the final say on the Mega Band sets because I, I prepare many possibilities and then Betsy Branch and Eric Weberg and I meet and we go over mm-hmm. them all and they toss out some of my choices. <laughs> <laughs> but I always have second choices. I, I never, I've rarely come up totally empty. But I, I have a, a large list of possibilities. And so I guess in, in any gig, you know, we're, we're looking for variety in the same way Mega Band does. It's just not as structured or as planned in advance. Boy, talk about something pre planned. You've got the Portland Mega Band. <laughs> You need to for yeah. that kind of thing. And, you know, you have to have a conductor and stuff with that many people. We do. We have, I'm one conductor and there's another conductor. We um, we do a lot of things by signal. Um, so it's it's not planned who's going to play when. You know, they've got, the band members have to watch us to find out what's going to happen next. And um, so we might signal fiddles next time or flutes next time or... Um, backup drop out and only percussion next time. Or if we give this signal, that that means we're going to go into something that we have prearranged. So is that a V shape that you for, just made with For variation. Hands? Yes, it is. That, ah, variation. Yeah, and the variations are all worked out in advance. So that means we're going to do the variation the next time around, which is something more fancy than just having a section come in or out. Right, and people assume that they all know what variation means. You know, you know what the thing they, is. Hopefully, they better. <laughs> you know, that's what we've been working on in our rehearsals. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah, but most of them do. And then even the variations are signaled. You know, once we get into them, so that people know what to do. But yeah, what repertoire do you draw on for your bands? Uh well. I asked the person who wrote the Portland collection. <laughs> um, not the, not necessarily the Portland collection, collections. Um, so in Joyride, oh, we like fluke a lot. That's yeah. yeah. And so we got a couple of people who are listening to fluke all the time, and they'll come back with ideas that they got from the fluke recordings. Or uh, we had a crowfoot stage. <laughs> Uh-huh. Everyone should have a Crowfoot stage. <laughs> Where we were playing, you know, half of our set list from Crowfoot. We, uh, um, so I guess I'm listing modern composers. We, um, we've had several Keith Murphy. We're still in Keith Murphy stage. <laughs> Everyone should also have a Keith Murphy stage. So, so there's that. So people are, are listening to these people. Um, there's fiddle tunes, which we haven't had now for two years in a row. So for me, 
I, Fiddletunes is the one thing that I have always gone to ever since my first year in the Baby Jammers room. Uh, I had to miss one year when I had a conflicting camp. Every other year I've been there that it's been on. And so I always come home with uh, tunes that I've learned there, either from staff members or from other musicians, you know, participants. So it, it would be rare that I uh, didn't come back from Fiddletunes with a bunch of stuff I wanted to try out. And um, so I would say rarely would we get anything just from sheet music in, in my mm -hmm. bands. I, we don't have anyone who's playing. I have, I have another band, too, um, the Stage Crew. <laughs> <laughs> nice name. And so, but no one in those bands is reading through books looking for tunes. They're, they're all learning from people or recordings or now YouTube, you know. Or another source, of a pandemic source, all these sessions that have popped up all over, you know, these Zoom sessions. Mm -hmm. Whole nother way to learn, so. Yeah, it's a cool mm -hmm. resource. Connect people who wouldn't get to meet yeah, in real life. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, just where, wherever we can find something that we like. Yeah. Thank you. 
from New England tunes? You know, I'm almost at the end of your um, podcast with Karina. And you asked for that sample. Uh, I ask everybody have, that question. Um, <laughs> not as many as they... Um, we do play New England tunes. We, they're not the preponderance of what we play, but um, Saratoga, Dominion, um, all the chestnuts. Um, my my band plays, you know, we can, I just think that that needs to be in every contra musician's repertoire. If someone wants to do Petronella, you know, you pull out, you pull out Petronella or chorus jig and I, I enjoy playing those. I know the dancers don't always enjoy dancing them, but you know, that's, that's our roots for Pete's sake. And, <laughs> and so I, um, Oh, Little Burnt Potato we'd play, and I'd have to... Connet Man's Rambles, that's in the New England Fiddler's repertoire, and mm-hmm. Irishman's Heart to the Ladies, and uh, so, yeah, we do, and we like them. Yeah, and in there you've mentioned a, a jig originally from Cape Breton, a jig originally from Ireland, mm-hmm. you know, a New England tune, and that's the New England repertoire, right? Mm-hmm. It's like... Some of these tunes maybe were written by New Englanders, and some of them have just kicked around New England long enough that they're like New England traditional. Mm-hmm. And, you know. well, well, when I think of the New England repertoire, I do think of Randy's book, you know, the New England uh-huh. Fiddler's repertoire, which uh, at one time it was probably the main source of tunes played here in Portland. And, and yeah. you'd hear a lot, you know, Real de Montreal, we'd still play that. Um, so I would say... When I started dancing, oh, 75% of the tunes came from that. But, but it's, it's changed. There are more resources, uh, but they're, they're wonderful tunes. Um, and, you know, they're, they're really great dance tunes. They're fun to play. I like them. Yeah, Randy is definitely on my list of people to talk yeah. with in this podcast, just waiting for the time yeah. to be right. Um, but it's interesting as another publisher of a book, I'm, I will look forward to what he has to say about the effects that that book had on the tune repertoire. You know, like once you release a repertoire book, it also changes the repertoire. It's like mm-hmm. that principle in science where you can't study <laughs> something without affecting it yes. at the same time. Yes. You know, and it's just interesting how that, you know, goes back to that book as well. Yeah, yeah. I always ask people about New England tunes because it's just such a fascinating concept to me of this being a kind of New England tradition, although, you know, it came from overseas and then got, like nothing is really from anywhere after you trace mm-hmm. it back far enough, right? Um, and now it has spread throughout the country and the tunes have changed a lot mm-hmm. in the last 30, 40, 50 years. Yes. And I'm just interested in why and how and what is the value of some of these older things and should we keep them around and why? You know, oh, those yeah. kind of questions. Well, I think it would be a shame to lose them. They're, uh, you know, they're, they're an important piece of this whole story. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I remember, it, I th- yeah, it was 1991, um, the first time that a, a group of um more modern Quebec players came to fiddle tunes. And Richard Faure was in it, and I can't remember who mm-hmm. the others are. But prior to that, the Quebec music had been along the lines of what you find in the New England Fiddler's repertoire, you know, with uh, yeah. straightforward chords and um, these standard melodies. Well, they, they came, and 
it, they just blew everyone's mind. You know, they were, it was a whole new thing um, that ended up kind of supplanting the, the older, the older tunes. I remember um, I was sitting in the, at Piddle Tunes uh, a workshop and I, I won't say who was teaching, although I do remember. So, but it was a room full of people and right across the hall, Richard Faure was teaching real Saint Antoine and none of us had ever heard it before. And all of us wow. in this one workshop, you know, we were leaning over to the other room, you know, what's going on over there? And it would seem so exciting to hear. And it was, uh, uh, you know, we, everybody was just drawn to this. It was almost like this point of divide in the Northwest between the old and the new, at least when it came to Quebec. <sighs> That's so interesting because now real San Antoine is like practically a chestnut. I know. You know, it's like one of those like open band tunes that everybody can wail away on and it's great and everybody knows it. It is true. How quickly, how quickly things yeah. changed. Well, right? it was 1991 and I, and I remember everybody's, you know, just being totally um, entranced by that tune and you got to play it. And, and kind of the same Yeah, I think the... the the Quebecois music scene is a great example, you know, of course, I'm not an expert in that, you know, but, but like, the flourishing of different types of tune and a lot of influence from Irish tunes and more people playing dad gag guitars, mm -hmm. yes. opposed to like traditional piano accompaniment. And the tunes were flashier and more nuanced and different kinds of chords. Mm -hmm. It's like a lot of what we've seen happening with country music. Yeah. The musicianship just taken to this whole other level and bands like La Batine Soriante and like other bands just like kind of reinventing it. And yet there are a lot of people who also love the old traditional tunes mm -hmm. and are trying to hang on to them. And I love like, you know, like in the contra world, we're lucky to have had bands like Tidal Wave and Jean Decorum mm -hmm. um, and, you know, talking to, you know, Pascal and Jan from Jean Decorum, and they love talking about the old tunes. They call them glorious mm -hmm. tunes instead of dorky tunes, yeah. which I love. Yeah. You know, and it's that thing. There's room for everything, mm -hmm. right? For yeah. the old and the new. Yeah. As long as we have that respect, as long as we don't forget about right. them. But I think it's easy to dismiss these old tunes as not as flashy. But... I just feel for a lot of us, the longer we play, the more we realize the essence of what is mm -hmm. there. Yeah. And there's a lot of good stuff there. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I'm very content when I play those tunes. Yeah. So do you have any thoughts about the future of where the concha dance music is headed? Oh, or? gosh. Oh, that was on your list of questions, I remember. I, I, yes. <laughs> um, and... Uh, so I got as far as do I have any thoughts about that? Hmm. Um, I I wonder if the pandemic is going to have changed things. I, I think mm -hmm. it's a little less easy to predict at the moment, but I don't know if that's just a momentary thing or if it's going to be a permanent thing. Um, I... I would expect it to continue kind of along the same trajectory of, um, you know, more national um, interplay, I guess you could say, you know, more national connection, just because of all the opportunities there are to connect. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think that will go on. I think 
it's not really a change in the music, but I, I think that people have learned how to take advantage of um, digital learning, you know, Zoom type learning. And that could have an effect that we, we can't really foresee. I, I've heard musicians say, gosh, do I really want to travel? It's been kind of nice, you yeah. know, not to be more rooted at home. Um, do I do I really want to get back on that you know treadmill? And then there are the other side of people saying, "Wow, I can't hardly wait to get back on and yeah. and go." Um, I I hope it thrives. You know, it's uh, social dance is such a wonderful thing. I it, it would be terrific if um, it became more widespread. Um, I'd love to see it taught in public schools, you know, and not, not just taught as a, an oddity, you know, something that you mm -hmm. had to put up with every uh, quarter in PE or something like that. But if, um, if it, it could, I mean, it's, it's such a healthy, joyful thing. Uh, and if more people could do it, either playing the music or dancing to it or just, you know, kind of getting involved in it, I, it would be a really good thing. I don't know if it'll happen. I yeah, I think that's a good good point because in the last 30 years we've had this huge flourishing of contra dance music, you know, even in like the number of tunes that were submitted to your Portland collections, like the first book did not get all the tunes, you had more submissions for every subsequent book. We did. Yeah. And and yet despite this incredible flourishing um, in terms of creativity and variety, most Americans have not even heard of this. Like people go through their whole yeah. lives and never hear about mm -hmm. this art form, yes. folk form at all. Yes. And it's very hard to explain to someone um, what you do, you know, what. Yeah, <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, because it's, um, it's just un unknown. Um, I think that I, I don't know about this for sure, but I suspect that more people are writing tunes now than before mm -hmm. maybe it's just because more i think more people are playing tunes i i don't know but that's my guess um at least it's uh, more people are we know about more people who are playing tunes than we used to we can put it that way yeah, yeah. but i think people are you know they're motivated and inspired by other composers that they they see and you know they want to do it too so i think that's a change uh, i think repertoires have broadened um of course there's the whole electronic aspect you know which probably will continue yeah yeah it's like a fun side mm -hmm. branch at least with me that was always my intention uh, for it to be you know mm -hmm. I don't think of any of these things as a linear evolution. And also linear evolution isn't linear. No. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. like we mistake the meaning of evolution as thinking of it as a linear progression towards something better. That's not how evolution yeah. works. You yeah. Know, just a little branch, a fun little yeah. side branch to explore. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, whatever we do, we keep coming back to the tunes because mm -hmm. that's the thing that holds it yeah. all together. Yeah, I know that I, I haven't had much opportunity to play in person. You know, nobody has. Um, but I was at, you know, during this little window when it seemed to be safe to get out, um, I did go to a, a rather large session, and it was uh, just so satisfying to sit down and play really basic tunes. 
I'd be so curious to have another version of the Portland collections in like 30 years. Don't worry, you don't have to write it. But like, <laughs> you know, like, what will it be in 30 years? Are these tunes that we all think of like real San Antoine and, you know, these little burnt potato, are these tunes still going to be the ubiquitous ones we think of them? Because, you know, mm-hmm. when I talk to people who were playing 30 years ago, the tunes they list, a lot of them, they're like, wait, you don't know this tune? Oh, yeah. You don't know mm-hmm. that tune? It changes quickly, and so I wish we could fast forward and see what the repertoire would look like. Who will stand the, the test future. of time? <laughs> you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what will that tune book look like? Uh-huh. The Portland Collection, Volume Twelve. <laughs> what will be in it? <laughs> yeah, well, well, one of my life tasks is finding a way to make sure the Portland collections get preserved in some form. Mm. You know, my kids don't want to deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame them. Yeah. Well, thankfully, we have organizations like CESS yeah. and yeah. other mm-hmm. libraries and things. Yeah. Is that how you're going to do it? Also, you could just put it all over YouTube now. Is that how everybody preserves everything? Yeah, just about. I, um, yeah, I don't know how I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm thinking about it, but I haven't come to any conclusions. That'd be fun to make like a concert dance music time capsule. It would, wouldn't it? <laughs> Yeah, and put it away, uh-huh. and then 50 or 100 years later, oh my gosh, take yeah. it out. I, take it to Nelson, if, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Put it under their renewed same old floor uh-huh. <laughs> that they rebuilt the same way that yeah. it used to be, and stick it uh-huh. under the floorboards, and then next time they have to redo their floor and keep the slant in it, they can dig up the time capsule. That would be great. That would be so it cool. Would. yeah. It has been so much fun to talk with you. Is there anything else that you want to get to while we're talking oh, today? Gosh, I feel like I've talked so much. Um, where's your list of questions? I don't think so. I mean, I can't think of anything else I have to say. Uh, here, let's see here. Um, oh, goodness. Well, here's one thing. Um, I don't know how you'll fit this in. What are my favorite moments? Uh, Yeah, I'd love to hear some favorite moments. Um, It's all going to be the same favorite moment. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And that is when everything is totally in sync at a dance. Um, And it's not a one-time thing. But when there's this um, really kind of almost a visceral connection between the dancers and the color and the music and everybody is just in the same space and you can feel it in the footfalls, you know, and you can feel it in the, uh, the music. And if the caller is still calling, which they probably aren't at that point, but they're there Mm -hmm. facilitating. It's when, when the dance reaches that point where, where there's just the synchronicity between um, us and them. That's that's my favorite moment, and it can be anywhere at any time. It can be in a small hall, at a community dance, or it can be you know some weekend. Um, doesn't matter. It's the same feeling. So that's that's my favorite moment. I love that. That's the same thing that inspired me. Really, to do it. Oh yeah, it's just nothing like that moment. Wow, like inspired you as a? Did you start out as a dancer or a musician? I was a dancer first. Uh-huh. Yeah. One of my friends brought me along and I was like, what is this thing? And of course, you don't experience that your first few times doing a dance. But then at some point you get mm-hmm. into it enough and you're like, whoa. Yeah. Yeah. It just. What is this thing? Uh-huh. And sometimes nights when it clicks with the band and uh-huh. the caller and the dancers. And then I was like, oh, 
I want to do this. Uh-huh. It was like a whole different activity to me than it had been before. Uh-huh. You know, while I was just learning. Yeah, yeah and so. so you came into it with with a lot of piano skills already. And so you yeah, can... but uh, unrelated piano skills. I had a lot to learn. <laughs> yeah, but it was little, like that moment. I remember that moment for me of that first moment of synchronicity, like you mm-hmm. talk about, and that being like, oh, I want to devote myself to this. I want to learn more about it. I want to experience uh-huh. it. Yeah. 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 I guess, you know, people talk about the dancers high and all that. And it, it, it might be that, but it might be something else. I'm not sure. You know, everyone probably experiences that kind of thing a little bit differently. Yeah. There's the musicians high too. Yeah. Oh, yes. Which is great. I mean, some musicians are, but that's a separate question. <laughs> but the, <Yes. laughs> the, the, the flow state that we all get, like your brain just gets to this different place mm-hmm. when you're locked in with people playing mm-hmm. music together. Yeah, it does. It's incredible. Yeah, it's 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 the best. I, I really like it. And it's a, you know, it's a group thing, a team thing. Yeah. Yeah. Having that amazing moment and sharing mm-hmm. it with people is the best. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it has been so wonderful to talk with you and hear your perspective on so many different oh, things. Thank and you. Just get to know you a little well, bit. I really well, appreciate I've it. I've enjoyed it as well. I and the chance to get to know you, to meet you, yeah, kind of in person like this. Well, thank you so much, Sue. It's been really wonderful. Thank you. I am just delighted to have had this chance to meet you and talk with you and share our experiences as piano players and musicians it's um it's been really fun look forward to the next time take care you too thanks for listening to contrapulse this project is supported by cdss the country dance and song society and is produced by ben williams thanks to great meta music for the use of tunes from the album old new england by bob mcquillan jane orzakowski and deanna styles Visit contrapulse.cdss.org for more info. Happy dancing!